Good morning. Um, welcome to Rolling Hills. Thank you all for being here today as we continue our series called um, God's Dwelling Place. Um, the idea that this great God of the universe wants to to dwell with us. My name is Nick Allen. I'm a discipleship pastor here, and I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that this is week three of a five-week series, and so we're kind of in the middle um, of where we've come and also yet where we have to go. Um, and today we're going to talk about the furnishings of this tabernacle that God instructed his people to build in the Old Testament. And, and this is a lot of text and a lot of details, and we read this stuff all the time, and we're like, you know, this is the parts of the Bible that when you get to your one-year Bible reading plan and you go over it, you kind of skip and you skim over because you're looking for something that matters. And if you don't connect what we're reading in the Old Testament book of Exodus to other parts of Scripture, you miss some details that are really, really important. Last week, Pastor Chase, our family pastor, did a fantastic job kind of centering everything that he talked about on the Holy of Holies and particularly the Ark of the Covenant that was inside that spot in the tabernacle. And if I'm just going to say, if you missed last week, if you were on a fall break vacation and you were coming back from out of town and, and you somehow missed that, sermon, I would encourage you to go back online or grab the Rolling Hills app and like monopoly that. Like do not pass go, do not collect $200. Like literally go and listen to that mess. Call in sick from work tomorrow just so you can stay home and listen to, to what God revealed to us about himself last Sunday. We continue today. Like, okay, so last week we were driving to like on a Sunday. And so we tuned in on the app, like pulled the message up and listened to the music as we were driving along. And my wife, Susan, like we got all Pentecostal holiness, just saying amen out loud on I-75 while we were listening to Chase teach um, about this ark and the symbol that it is for our faith. Um, because I mentioned I-75 North, you kind of rightly um, concluded that we were heading back from the Walt Disney World, um, where we took our family for a little fall break vacation. Um, and let me, t you know, from my childhood, Walt Disney World has changed just a little bit. Like some of the familiarities are there, um, but the way you approach Disney is different. When I was a kid, you just went around, decided where you wanted to get in line, and if you randomly encountered a character walking around, that was a good day. Now everything is scheduled. Your rides are scheduled. Your character encounters are scheduled. You have, Disney is complevenient. Okay, like they work real hard to make everything convenient for you, but in some ways it's very complicated, so convenient. Okay, so we're walking around with this app trying to figure out what time things start and where we've got to go and where we've got to be when. And I, at one point, may or may not have said to myself, hmm, I would rather take a hundred other people's children to Rolling Hills Kids Camp than my own one family here to this place because it's so, like it's so, it is not a relaxing vacation. You've done it, you know. So the weeks prior to going to the Walt Disney World, our kids were so excited, and Simon, who didn't remember any of it, was really excited. He's five years old. He's pumped up about going. At some point in the weeks before, it dawned on Simon, are we going to sleep there? Like we had been talking about like rides and characters and shows and experiences, it finally pulled together in his mind to go, we're going to be there for more than one day. Are we going to sleep there? You see, you can do Dollywood and six flags in a solid day. But Disney, it takes longer. You, you, you got to sleep there. This idea of a tabernacle, we can't speed our way through this on our way to being New Testament Christians. We have to rest our heads on these pages and stay a while or else we'll miss something really, really important. There are more verses in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, dedicated to tabernacle than any other object. And if we speed through it, only stay for a day on our way to something else, we, we miss something. And make no mistake, the thing that we miss is 
clearer picture of Jesus than we ever imagined. This word isn't just facts for us to know and details for us to absorb. It's to influence who we are. God wants to tell us about his son. He wants to show us a picture of himself, not just so we can know him better, so that we can love and follow him more. And there are moments today where I might get a little bit fired up. I apologize in advance. Just do like they do at Disney. Buckle up. Keep your hands and arms inside the vehicle at all times. And we're going to have fun together today because there's lots of parts of this that are going to surprise us along the way. So on the back side of your notes, we gave you something kind of cool this morning. If you're a visual learner, I hope you love this as much as I do. It's actually a diagram of the tabernacle. And, and there's blanks there for you to fill in the parts and components of it, because as we encounter each one of the pieces of furniture, um, we want you to kind of know where they are and, and how you navigate through this place. And so there's a diagram on the screen, and uh, you get to fill these out as you go. The first place that we're going to start with is that inner chamber. It's the Holy of Holies. It's what Pastor Chase talked about last week. It's where the high priest would go inside once a year and only once a year and only the high priest to make a sacrifice for atonement on behalf of the people. That was an important spot. Geographically, um, the, the part right outside of that inside the tent is a holy place. And then the whole court is called the outer court. So now you've got kind of the layout of the, the three levels of tabernacle. If you go back to the Holy of Holies, you see the Ark of the Covenant. That's what Chase talked about last week. It housed the Word of God. What separates uh, the Holy of Holies and the holy place is a veil. And, and you'll remember that as we get to Easter and we talk about Jesus dying on the cross, we know that in the moment, in the hour of his death, that that veil in the temple, not the tabernacle, but the erected temple, was torn in two from top to bottom, indicating that God had ripped apart what separated himself and his presence from mankind. That's an important piece of this tabernacle. And if you move to the entrance, kind of working your way in, these are the five pieces of furniture that we're going to focus on today. This looks like the Pottery Barn website, where you can like move your furniture around and kind of decide the space plan of your room. Starting at the beginning, at the entrance, you get the bronze altar. It's an altar of sacrifice. And then moving on from that, that circle, that's the basin or the laver, the water. And if you move into the holy place, to your right would be the table. We'll talk about that this morning. And to your left, you would see this, the menorah, this lamp stand. Looks like a candelabra. And then finally, right there on the outside of the veil, the last piece of furniture that you encounter is um, the altar of incense. Can you imagine walking into that um, that part of the curtain and, and seeing the light flicker and then smelling the aroma of incense burning. I hope that we, we, we see the light of Christ today and, and that we smell something sweet of the Lord as we encounter his word. Why all of this? It's because each and every piece represented something really important about Israel's relationship with God and ultimately today our relationship with Jesus. I got to tell you, almost everything I know about the tabernacle, um, I learned from Bible study author Beth Moore. Um, I've been doing a Bible study. Don't judge. It's called A Woman's Heart, God's Dwelling Place. Um, I know a lot about the Pentateuch, um, and I'm thinking about getting highlights. I mean, that's like the purpose of this Bible study in my life. It's been fantastic, and a lot of the truths that I'm understanding are coming straight out of this Bible study, the bronze altar. And, and so on the reverse side of your notes, we've got all five pieces of furniture, and basically the starting point scripture passage where it's described about how to build. And you start with this bronze altar. It was the first and a really important piece of furniture that an Israelite would have encountered on their way into the tabernacle complex. And if you look at Exodus chapter 27, starting with verse 1, it says, Build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, 
five cubits long and five cubits wide. So a cubit is like basically a foot and a half, give or take. And so basically it's like seven and a half feet around all sides, like, you know, squared up. It says in verse two, make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns and the altar are of one piece and overlay the altar with bronze. It continues to give instructions about how this thing was supposed to be built. This bronze is a pretty important part, but so is the wood. And not just the fact that it was constructed of wood, because, you know, what were they going to use? Metal during this time? No, wood. Well, the specific type of wood, this acacia wood. And it it made sense, because in this moment, like, those trees would have been everywhere. They would have been in abundance. They could have gotten enough of it to make all the things that they were supposed to make inside the tabernacle. But it was a specific type of wood. And this acacia or acacia wood, it, it... it secreted, I didn't know I was going to say the word secreted this morning. Okay, it secreted a sap that embedded itself into the wood, making it long-lasting and very hard. It didn't decompose. Like, this was a really strong wood. And I'm looking at the symbol of our faith. Like, we want our faith to be built on a strong foundation. So this wood was strong. But not just that. Like, the fronds and the parts of branches that had, like, leaves and stuff on it also had thorns. And this is the cool thing about the thorns. Ants, like ants, would burrow holes inside the thorns, and that was their little tiny ant houses. And the cool thing about the ants that lived in the thorns on the acacia wood tree is this, is that they would fight off other pests. So if you were a locust or a beetle or, I don't know, like a termite, um, yeah, that if you couldn't live on an acacia tree because the ants would take you out. And, and so I'm looking at the thorns, and I'm knowing that they were a part of the protection, but then I'm also picturing my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as he was crowned with thorns, not just a symbol of his disgrace, but a reminder. Christ is our foundation, and that he is firmly fixed for us. This is a firm, long-lasting wood, and then it would be covered with bronze. And on each of the four corners was set this horn, like an ox horn on the corners. And and, and horns are a symbol of strength. Um, They're a a symbol of vitality. And, And not just that, but they also served a purpose. Those horns were the tiebacks so that the animal could be tied down to the top of the altar of sacrifice. And so you read this specific detail about a horn being on the corner, and you're thinking, oh, that's lovely. Now I know what it looks like. But if you skip ahead to Psalm chapter 18, verse 2, and it says these words, these familiar words, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I'm reading that verse like throughout my life, and I'm going, the horn of my salvation. It's probably the guy blowing the trumpet at the beginning of an army saying that the cavalry has arrived, but it's not horn-like trumpet. It's horn-like horn because it's the same Hebrew word referencing uh, Exodus chapter 27, verse 2. Knowing that Jesus Christ was eventually the sacrifice that was tied down for us. And that was slaughtered for us. This altar of sacrifice was the first piece of furniture that an Israelite would have encountered on their way into the tabernacle court. And a Bible history um, scholar wrote, Apart from the bronze altar, there was no approach to God. In the covenant with Yahweh, it was a blood covenant. And therefore, the innocent animal represents the sinner and took his place on the altar. It's the definition of substitutionary atonement. That's why. That's why there was the laying on of hands upon the innocent sacrifice, transferring our sin and our guilt onto that animal. And then the violent slicing of the throat. It's a graphic image that would make your skin crawl, but it brings an incredible awareness of the awesomeness of our sin and the payment of it being 
death. Only then can we be accepted and declared right before God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And without the forgiveness of sins, there is no right relationship with God. All of our talks about salvation, the talks that we have with friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus, the talks that we have with our own children who we're raising to know and follow Jesus have to begin with a basic understanding of our sin being an affront to holy God and our sin being the reason that Jesus Christ had to die and that his blood alone atoned for that sin. In Leviticus chapter 6, it's, it's a cool reminder that the Israelites were commanded to keep the fire constantly burning on that altar. And then in chapter 9, verse 24 of Leviticus, we find out where the fire came from. It says, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. We're commanded to keep that fire burning And we have to be reminded that it is the Lord who lights that fire. Has he lit a fire in you? And is it burning as hot now as it did then? What kind of sacrifice is tied down on the altar of your life before the Lord? These are words about a piece of furniture that indicate the status of even our hearts today. So you go to the next piece. It's this wash basin. In Exodus chapter 30, starting with verse 17, we we read these words. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a bronze basin. We're still in bronze with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet so they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for generations to come. Also made of bronze, we, we kind of wonder, where'd they get all these materials? Where did this even come from? In Exodus 38, 8, it tells us, they made the bronze basin and its bronze stand from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Mirrors are commonplace today. You have them in every bathroom in your house. You you may have them on like a a little handy portable device inside your pocketbooks, ladies. I mean, that's great. Mirrors are, they're everywhere. They're even in this building and we use them all the time. And we may take them for granted because in the ancient world, mirrors were luxury items. Not everybody had a mirror, but when they plundered Egypt on the way out in Exodus chapter 12 and 13, they were able to take precious metals and gold and resources with them. Well, apparently they took these bronze mirrors from the women. And Imagine the sacrifice. This is a treasured possession. This is a status symbol. And the women are laying these down in order to compose a a wash basin before the Lord. And they're not just getting rid of a luxury item. They're not just sacrificing um, something that they owned and that was theirs so that something greater can come. Like they're literally giving away a piece of their vanity. No longer would they have an opportunity to kind of check their teeth and style their hair. They're not only giving up a luxury, they're giving up their vanity the reflection and the image and the status that they're trying to create for themselves, they're laying that aside so that God's altar can be built, so that God's tabernacle can be constructed. And so when you walk by and this bowl made of bronze with the water in it, imagine what people would see as they look down to wash their hands. They would see their own reflection in the water and the metal, and it wouldn't be 
the same as looking into a mirror. It would be an altered reflection, and that's what we so desire to be true about us. I want to trade this image and this reflection for the, the image of Jesus and a reflection of him living in my life. First Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Paul's writing these words, and he says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Before we engage this worship practice, everyone ought to examine themselves. And if I'm a a New Testament Jew who is now bought into the life of Jesus Christ, and I'm listening to the teachings of Paul, and I'm being told to examine myself before I worship, I'm thinking back to my Old Testament history and my ancestral roots, and I'm realizing that, oh, examine myself? I, I need to see who I am in in the light and the reflection of who he is. I need to know if there's unconfessed sin in my life so that I can bring that before the Lord. I need to know if there's an, an attitude or an indication in my life of something that is not pleasing before him. I fret today over how casually we, and we, not just like me and you, but like we as in like Western Christians and like North America, how casually we treat this King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I, I, I look down and I make no eye contact in this room and I'm thinking to myself, like how casually we even approach this experience of corporate worship. Like what about this matters to us? Does it, does it matter that we're coming together with a body of like-minded believers that we may not even know their names and their stories, but together we're collectively saying in this room, Lord, we believe in you and we need you. And we're bringing a sacrifice, not of a dead animal. Oh, thanks be to God, because I don't think I would make a very Old Testament priest that was good, because I don't know that I could slaughter the animal. Wouldn't that be crazy if you had to bring a goat with you to church this morning? You didn't. But we, we bring our words, and we bring our affections, and we bring our attentions before holy God. And I don't think that the God of this great universe is tally marking our attendance or our punctuality and the way that we approach this opportunity But I I do wonder if those things indicate something about our heart and our priorities that, let's just be honest, God does care an awful lot about. How we come together in worship matters, and it might be an image that we want to reflect on and pay attention to. It's not an accident that when an Israelite wanted to make their way from the outer court into the holy place, they had to pass blood and water. When Jesus Christ was hanging on a cross and his side was pierced, it was blood and water that poured out. It was blood being shed that would make atonement for sin, and it was water being cleansed that would indicate that we had we've been forgiven and made clean before God. Those images, those pieces of furniture those orders, they, they matter and they give us something to reflect on. Into that first layer of tent, the holy place, you encounter three things. On the right, you have a table. On it, shoe bread or the bread of presence, this, this unleavened bread. It was 12 loaves for the 12 tribes of Israel and they all came from one loaf, divided 12 ways and they were put in these two stacks of six. And the word for table in Hebrew is sultan and it literally means meal or spread. God didn't just give us a table. He gave us the food that was on it. Uh, Exodus chapter 25, verses 23 through 29 in your notes, they, they give us specific instructions for how to build the table, but verse 30 tells us what the table was for. It says, put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at 
all times indicating that the food on God's table never runs out. Jesus told us that. He said that he was the bread of life, and if we ever ate of him, we would not be hungry. You know what I love about this table? It was made of wood and overlaid with gold. The wood being humanity and the gold being deity coming together to make a piece of furniture that indicates that you and I are invited to come together and dine with the Lord. And the bread is ever-present because God doesn't invite us to an empty table. And a meal with the Lord is never pot luck. We don't have to bring anything. He's got it all laid out. And the reason that we are able to have a seat at the table, not just a regular ordinary seat, but a fancy one with like, like a place card with our name written on it is because Jesus Christ died to give us a place. His life is that bread. And if we partake of it, we won't be hungry. We won't be needy. We won't be looking around in all the wrong places for the love and the affection and the life and the purpose that we need. We'll find all of that in Christ and in Christ alone. My, my favorite piece of furniture is the one that you encounter to the left, not the table with the lamp. Instructions were given in Exodus 25 and, and we see them fulfilled in Exodus 37 and people fulfill them exactly like God had commanded. In verse 22, you read the buds and the branches. Why buds and branches? Because this candelabra was a, a long stem went at a like, hammered pure gold and it had these branches, these offshoots of it, like three of them with three lamps each. So there's these six lights on each side and the lamp in the middle composing seven instructions were given. It says the buds and the branches were all of one piece with the lampstand hammered out of pure gold. They made its seven lamps as well as its wicks and trimmers and trays of pure gold. They made the lampstand and all of its accessories from one talent of pure gold. And I googled it this week like multiple times and I used multiple sources because I wanted to make sure this was right because I was blown away. Like one talent of gold is the equivalent of 75 pounds of gold. If you want to know how much that costs in today's economy, it's about 1.4 million dollars. That is an expensive candlestick. And it was the only piece of light illuminating this tent, giving light to the priest who would enter to do the work and to perform the duties of worship in the community. So why seven? Is, is it, is it, can we suffice it to say that, well, seven, that's the number of completion, and it's perfect, so it makes sense that the candelabra had seven lights on it? No. Revelation chapter 4, we just spent some time there because we were talking about heaven and the future, but we got to go to the past. It says, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are, what are they? The seven spirits of God, which is so confusing because we sing God in three persons, blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now he's all of a sudden seven spirits. That's so confusing. It's not God in seven entity, like it's Trinity. Come on, what does that even mean? Well, Isaiah chapter 11 tells us. It says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. The sevenfold spirit of God is Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear. You know, lamps in these days weren't electric, certainly, and they weren't gas, and they weren't even wax. This was not a candle that would burn out that you would have to replace. It was oil. What kind of oil? Olive oil. And this is why that matters. 
It matters that these offshoots of the candle were called branches because in Romans chapter 11, when Paul wanted to explain to Jewish people what it was like for people who weren't Jewish people to have an inheritance with God, he talked about branches being cut off. He talked about like branch that doesn't believe being cut off so that it could greater strengthen the vine and that another branch was grafted into its place that you and I are the adopted sons and daughters of God because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. And then when Paul goes further in Romans chapter 11 to talk about what kind of tree it was, it's an olive tree, the kind where you would get olives from which you would make olive oil, from which you would burn a candle inside the holy place of God. And so if I'm a Jew recognizing what he's talking about, the fact that non-Jewish brothers and sisters are now going to be a part of my family and it's from an olive tree, I'm recognizing that the candelabra represents something even greater about my faith so that it's not just the Spirit of God resting on me as a descendant of Abraham. It's the Spirit of God resting on even people that aren't descendants of Abraham because they too are a part of the same hammered lampstand. You're not as blown away as me, but I'm, I'm seeing Scripture come to life going, wow. God was telling a story from the beginning of what his son Jesus would accomplish. What he would do for us what he would provide for us. The last piece of furniture that you make your way to in the holy place before you enter into the Holy of Holies and you see that glorious Ark of the Covenant is the, the altar of incense in your notes. Next is chapter 30. It says that the incense that was burned would be salted and sacred and pure. That's a picture of what we are to be before God. And this was constantly burning a fragrance up to the Lord. The incense, according to Psalm chapter 141, verse 2, represented prayers. And if you go even further into the book of Revelation chapter 5, the, these, these creatures, these living creatures that were worshiping God, they were holding bowls, bowls filled with what? With incense. And what did the incense inside the bowls represent? It represented the prayers of God's people. So this incense making its way up to God like a pleasing aroma is the prayers of God's people and not just God's people, but also God's son. You know, we, we pray as a church. The prayer requests that you provide on a Sunday morning or that you email in or that you, you send to a staff team member, a ministry team leader, like we, we pray for those. We gather weekly. We send those out. We, we, we pray together collectively and we pray individually that God would meet, that God would honor, that God would heal, that God would provide, that God would address all of the situations in our lives. And, and I think that it is an amazing thing to be a church full of people who pray, but that's not the most amazing thing about prayer. Most amazing thing about prayer is not that I pray for you. The most amazing thing about prayer is not that Jeff Simmons prays for you. The most amazing thing about prayer is that Jesus Christ prays for you. It says it for us in Hebrews chapter 7. Therefore he, that's Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him. That's Jesus because he, Jesus, always lives to intercede for them. We talk a lot about how glad we are that Jesus died for us and we are. We ought to talk as much about how glad we are that Jesus lives for us and that he lives to pray for us. Talk about Jesus being present. And what we really mean is that the Holy Spirit is with us because Christ, he's sitting right next to God with a direct access, whispering on our behalf, praying for us, interceding for us. You know, the goal of this series, looking at all these tabernacle details, acacia this, cubits this, gold this, bronze this, mirrors here, horns there, like 
it can be an overwhelming lot of details. And hopefully what it does is it whets our appetite, making us want more of these verses, more of these truths, more of these cross-references, more of these connections, so that we can see a clearer picture of Jesus. Someone in your life has told you that the Old Testament and the New Testament don't connect, that there are discrepancies about God between the two, that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment and hatred and fire, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love and grace and freedom and live however you want to live, but that's not true. Tabernacle paints a different picture for us. It it tells us of a God who is connected from before even the beginning and a God who desires to dwell with his people from the beginning and a God who desired to dwell with his people so much he was willing to go to great lengths in order to make that happen. The greatest of lengths, giving his son, a son that was pictured through these furnishings, through this tabernacle, through these images, and through this practice of worship. Someone in your life has told, maybe you, have said, I don't see how these two things connect. I don't see how a sacrificial system in the Old Testament could connect to the daily worship practice of Jesus in my life today. And so I'm going to disconnect them two in my mind and not focus on one the way that I focus on the other. We don't get a good picture of Jesus that way. Because he's not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jesus. He's not just New Testament Jesus. He's all of God's word, Jesus. And we want to see the best picture of him. That's what tabernacle does for us. And these furnishings invite us to ask some questions. What's my sacrifice? What's laid out on the altar of my life? Has Jesus' blood covered my sin and shame? What does my reflection reveal about my heart and my priority of Jesus in my life? What is it that I need when I come to his table? What is it that I'm missing from my life with Jesus? What part of God's word do I need to digest today so that I will know him and follow him more? What lamp do I need illuminated in my life? What is, what is the wisdom? What is the counsel? What is the courage? What is the might? What is the discernment? What is the presence of the Lord that I need to be so clear to me today that I can see it like a lamp in front of my face? And what is my prayer life? When Jesus looks at me, what prayers does he pray on my behalf? And and what are the things that are burdening my life right now that I'm bringing to the only place that I can bring anything that matters to the God of this universe saying, I need you, I want you, I trust you, help. As we make our way into the Holy of Holies to look at his word and to experience his presence, we encounter that sacrifice We encounter that reflection. We take in that provision. We see that illuminated glory. And we pray to God, thanking him for who he is and asking for direction in what we do in this life to honor him. When Susan and I were first pregnant, it was about 11 years ago. Our oldest is getting ready to have a birthday and 11 years old, that just feels overwhelming. And so she had this book. It was huge. It was like a Bible. It was called What to Expect When You're Expecting. By the time we were having our third kid, you didn't need that book anymore. You had, a, you had an app on your phone, and it would send you these daily updates to say, your baby is as big as a turnip. Your baby has ears. Today, your baby is forming finger buds and has a finger. Like, it was tell you all these details about your baby. And just, you've heard the expression, don't tell me about the delivery, just show me the baby. When we live our life as New Testament Christians, bypassing this tabernacle in order to make our way to Christmas, we're missing a really important gestation along the way. 
And we're missing the point that the Old Testament is a really long pregnancy that points us to a baby that we will know better if we study this word more. And we won't just know this baby better. We'll know our Savior better. So the application for us today is clear. Get in this. Rest here. Stay here. Read here. Study here. Digest here these words so that you can know and follow and love Jesus. Jesus, who we collectively say together to today, I want more of you. And not just more of you, I want a more clear, I want a more clearer you. I want a better picture of you so that I can be a better reflection of you. And somehow, looking at these words and examining these details, digesting their meanings, we will see more how very much God loves us and how far he was willing to go to dwell with us. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we, we come before you today humbly asking that you would teach us, that you would show us what your word says, that you would tell us what it all means so that an affection in us would be stirred, so that an affection in us would be grown, so that a loving desire to know you better would manifest inside of each of us, causing us to want to know you more, study you more, engage you more, dwell with you more every day. Thank you for Jesus' sacrifice, the reflection of your image in our lives, the provision that you've made for us, the light that you give to us, and the prayers that you make for us. Father, help us to be a people who desire nothing more than you in our lives. Nothing more than the sacrifice of Jesus applied to our lives. And nothing more than the opportunity to live for him out in the world so that other people will see you too. It's in your holy, perfect, precious name and spirit that we pray. Amen.